This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. I've always had a passion and a love for the Great Plains and for sharing what the Great Plains have to offer, especially outdoors. That is this week's guest, Rob McDonald, also known as the Modern Wildman. Join us this week as we talk about Great Plains Outdoors podcast, blog, his experience with writing, public speaking, being a husband and father to two boys that he has completely immersed into the outdoors and join us as we talk about something that I have actually never done summer squirrel hunting what the Great Plains is all about and loving our flyover states we talk about a lot of stuff on this podcast but he's an incredible man incredible guest so glad you guys are here welcome to another episode of woods and waters project Rob McDonald, welcome to uh, Woods and Waters Project Podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks, Steph. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> we haven't met in person yet, but how we connected was through your podcast and my, my co-worker, my partner, Brittany, through Outdoor Mentors, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I'm super grateful to have you on the podcast because 
I, after, you know, kind of doing my stalking that I do of people uh, before they come on the podcast, getting to know like all the things you have done that you're into, I'm really interested in because myself, like I really resonate with what we're about to talk about and some things we're going to learn from you today. And I'm really excited to share with the guests. But before I go on my rambles that I do, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Rob McDonald. That's Rob, R-O-B. Sometimes people hear it as Ron McDonald and my parents weren't that cool. <laughs> so it's it's Rob McDonald. And uh, yeah, I'm a lifelong outdoorsman, father of two boys. Um, I have a, a wonderful wife. We make our home on the uh, cow-calf country, the Flint Hills of Kansas. Uh, if you've never been to the Flint Hills, put it on your bucket list. Uh, we just had the Garmin Unbound Gravel Grinding Race, which is the world premier bicycle gravel grinding race, came by our driveway two, two weekends ago, I think. Um, so it's interesting. There's people that um, can can that are in that circle that uh, you tell them you're from near Emporia, Kansas, and all of a sudden... Um, they're excited about that but it's funny because people some of those people came by on their bicycles and were like you actually live here like out in the middle of nowhere in this big grassy you know it's like yeah we live here so um, I'm into most things outdoors and both consumptive and non-consumptive um, and trying to get my kids my boys outside uh, whether that's with a paddle in a kayak or a canoe or a backpack or horseback. Um, we try to take part in most of the hunting seasons. We fish all the time. Um, and I'm a bit of a storyteller, I suppose. I do some outdoor writing uh, for various brands published in uh, various magazines. And uh, you mentioned the uh, relationship that uh, mutual uh, friend Brittany French who's fantastic uh, her and I started the Great Plains Outdoors podcast that you were a guest on that's how you and I met right um, and recently Brittany and I partnered with another mutual friend uh, by the name of Brent Frizee so Brent uh, is a retired outdoor editor for the Kansas City Star for a, a long 10 year I, I hate to guess how long he was there uh, but a, an award-winning outdoor writer and the three of us have launched uh, what we're calling greatplainsoutdoors.com. Um, so that incorporates our podcast and various articles around recipes and stories. And um, Brent uh, is now known as Grandpa Fish uh, on our podcast. And so you can tune in uh, for the monthly Grandpa Fish Fishing Report on the Great Plains Outdoors podcast. So that's me or a little bit about it, about me. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And you know what I felt uh, like I now, I now again feel guilty about is when you were just talking about Emporia, Kansas and the Flint Hills, uh, you had an event the same time that I was out there. Cause I actually stayed in Emporia. I went turkey hunting with one of my outdoor mentor coworkers. So did you go hunting, yeah. you go hunting with Eric? Yeah, I went turkey hunting okay. with Eric, and uh, but you had a outdoor uh, communicator, right? Outdoor communicator. Yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, actually the president of Outdoor Communicators of Kansas. Uh, 
and we're just a group of outdoor creators, content creators, whether it's uh, print copy, uh, online stuff, blogging, uh, photography, videography, podcasting, mentoring. Uh, yeah, and we had our uh, we have a spring and a fall conference, and we had our uh, spring conference at Council Grove. So you should have came and hung out and caught some crappie with us. What the heck? I know, I know. So, but you, I think your event was the same time, roughly, as our Busticlay event, maybe. For oh members. yeah, for sure. Yep, it was. So, there was so a that's where yeah. I I realized it because I saw you post about it, and I was so bummed because we have some mutual connections through that as well. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, I've I've loved to write since I was young. That's like the one area um, in school, no matter what I was doing, that was an area that I thrived and loved in. So now I'm finally really trying to make that more of my life and a thing and have started to write for some magazines in the outdoor space and Great. Um, a mutual connection. We have Edgar Castillo, who's been on this podcast and I'm just a mm -hmm. big fan of his, uh, you know, kind of nudged me to just put myself out there and it's been really awesome. And I've, it's just been amazing. And so when I was on the podcast with you and we talked about that group and that network, I was like, wow, between the podcasting and the writing and everything I love to do, I need to, I want to be a part of this, you know, I, I want to learn more about it and be connected. So I think that's awesome. But what I was feeling guilty about was one, not going to that, but you know, I had, I had the work uh, stuff going on, but uh, I was like, I should, you know, try to meet him. And I got to meet Edgar uh that week so that was really exciting to to meet him in person and get to talk yeah, with him it. and have a drink with him but the flint hills you're absolutely right i that's where i went turkey hunting uh with eric it was stunningly beautiful we had quite the experience we didn't get a turkey but it got really close and it we are actually i'm totally i'm totally blanking now thinking about this but we were actually doing a radio show while we were out turkey hunting. We didn't think we were going to get a turkey based on how the last day and a half had been going. Were you on the radio with Phil? Yes. What's in yes. outdoors with Phil Taunton? Yes. And Phil was at the conference. Yes. Yeah, okay. he was in the boat with David Harrison, who writes for In Fisherman. Yes. Doing yes. your interview. Yeah, perfect. Yes. So we told him, he asked to have Eric and I on the radio, and we said yes, but as the morning was going, we had Tom's coming in and we were like out in the open and I'm looking at Eric. I'm like, we gotta, like, we gotta cancel this. We can't, we can't do this. Like the turkeys are coming in. Yeah. And then the turkey, the, the Tom's just disappeared. And we had like probably five minutes to still do this radio show. So we're like, mm -hmm. yeah, let's just do it. Like they ran off. They must've seen us, you know, something. So we're walking like a hundred yards back away from where we were initially sitting, where the Toms were coming in. As I'm walking towards Eric and he's like waving me down, like, come on, let's do this radio show. Had this, this turkey had to have been maybe 50. I don't know where he was. I have no idea where he was, but all of a sudden you just hear like, and it's like, it is, I'm looking at Eric. He's looking at me and he's like, just, just come here. Like, we'll just, you know, I've got a fan. We're doing this interview a hundred yards away. I have his fan up in the air, I'm like trying to like get it to do yeah, something. Yeah. We have no idea where it's at, but it had to have been right behind this bush or, or something. Um, and then the whole time I'm doing this radio show with Eric and Phil, I'm, I'm just like, my adrenaline is 
just going all over the place. I can't concentrate on the questions. I think it went just fine, but we didn't get a turkey. It didn't, you know, didn't work out, but um, man, it was really fun to do the radio show. Good but, stuff. <laughs> but the, but Flint, but the Flint Hills, I'd never been and it was absolutely beautiful. And I saw multiple prairie chickens. I've never seen a prairie chicken like in the wild before. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just, it was, it was gorgeous. So I just wanted to echo, uh, you know, what you're saying and just, I had the best experience and I really hope to go back out there and um, turkey hunt again and, or whatever type of hunting again. It was awesome. Yep. Yeah, we're the, uh, the largest remaining intact uh, tall grass prairie anywhere in the world. Uh, right here in the Flint Hills of Kansas. Yeah, that's, and I, I know that really very few places in the world look like they did hundreds of years ago, um, if if at all. You know, right. we've just between erosion and what humans have done and all those different sure. things. But noxious um, weeds and invasive species and things. Yes. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I, being there feels kind of like you're back in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the way you said that, it, that really like, really speaks to like how I felt about it. It just felt like a different place, different time. Um, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous and kind of unexpected, you know, parts of my drive from Iowa to Kansas is pretty, um, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty flat and dry looking, you know, so yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of unexpected, but it's very cool. And people should definitely get a, you know, it's, don't want to give it away too much but if people can see it check it out they they should yep yeah awesome. that's awesome um so yeah emporia kansas flint hills but yeah i definitely think that organization that you're a part of um i'm gonna link it in the podcast notes as well so people can check that out especially the listeners that are you know interested in podcasting interested in writing and content creation and uh, being a part of the outdoor industry from a like a bigger like lens I suppose uh I think that's amazing and I myself want to look into being a part of that organization as well so with with everything else you have going on I know that you do some public speaking too is your public speaking around the outdoors or what does that typically look like yeah so um occasionally uh whether it could be a library group or a civic club um or working um with a conservation uh group you know have have a conference um uh, you know a lot of that has it, it's starting to pick back up um but a lot of that sort of was sunsetted during the, the pandemic um but folks you know occasionally reach out to me to talk about things like the flint hills or uh my journey as a father with um bringing my kids up. I, I did an article um, for a brand called Endless Migration, which is sort of a, a sister article uh, company or, or brand, I guess, to Project Upland um, that was called, I think the title of the article was called like the last of the first. Uh, and it was all about <clears throat> the last day of my oldest son's first duck season. So we, we hunt waterfowl pretty hard. Um, and the very last day of that season was sort of like this, um, this pinnacle of, you know, he'd been going for years. Um, you know, we'd throw diaper bags and a bottle in my blind bag and a sleeping bag and stick him in there and we'd hunt ducks. 
Um, but this was the first year when he was a duck hunter. You know, he had his shotgun, he was calling birds. And um, so it was kind of this reflection back. And so I've done some speaking about things like that. Um, really just depend on, you know, if a, if a group reaches out and they're looking for somebody on some sort of a, a topic around uh, mentorship, fatherhood, the outdoors, the Great Plains. Um, I've, I've done some different speaking on topics like that. I see. I didn't realize all of that. And I love that. And, you know, the listeners can't see me, but I'm like shaking my head the whole time. So when you said endless migration, that's the first magazine I ever had an article published. Okay. With. So that right. was, uh, yeah, talking about my first time snow goose hunting and becoming a snow goose hunter and becoming addicted to it uh, yeah. is what is what I, it was my first article. So I, I love that. Uh, and you know, personally, so to, to speak on what I was saying earlier about you as a person and like kind of getting to know you from like a, you know, cause I don't, I don't know, you know, you, but just from like a social media, uh, seeing the stuff that you do just from our time together in the podcast, I really am motivated and admire things you're doing. Cause just, so we're talking about the writing part. I have just gotten my first couple opportunities to speak, uh, public speak. And that just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and not really nowhere. I had told one, one friend of mine who is not like in this world at all, uh-huh. but she is, she is like in the women entrepreneurial, uh, world and very inspirational woman. Um, and has helped me a lot from the kind of confidence, believing in myself aspect of things. I had sent her a text about a month, a couple months ago, just saying that I have a desire to do some public speaking um it terrifies me but I do have a really strong desire to do it and I would love to see myself doing that someday and I have you know I have always thought that but I haven't said that to anybody before and I just said that to her just wanting to say it to her because I think you said it out loud right yeah it makes it it real right yes and then Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden I was asked by two different places to speak on uh women in the outdoors and okay and that's a subject that you know Sure. is near and dear to my heart uh, because outside of outdoor mentors which is my full-time job of planning hunts for youth in Iowa I teach women outdoor skills I host retreats for women and do workshops teaching them bow hunting bow fishing uh, partner with other wonderful women to teach them outdoor skills and so these ladies have a community and they can learn together but also have friends to go hunting or fishing with at the end of the day And so when you're saying all these things, I'm like so inspired and like, just feel it in my soul because I, I can relate to it because that's the journey I'm starting to go on right now. Um, So that's really neat to hear you go through that. And that just kind of sounds like happening sort of organically. So that's very inspiring for me. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, it comes up a few times on this podcast, but I'm always like, I always love hearing how parents immerse their kids into the outdoors as well and what that looks like. And when you were talking about the, I'm going to, I hope I, I'm not going to say this right. The last of the first, right? Like that whole idea. Mm-hmm. Am I saying yep. that right? Yep. Uh, yep. I, I totally relate and feel that because there's so many different types of hunting that I grew up doing my whole life that that magical feeling is still there because I love mm-hmm. it so much, but it's, it's interesting 
sometimes stepping back and realizing I'm, I'm not really an expert in anything, but realizing that sometimes like I'm like the go-to, like I'm the person who can now teach. I'm the person who can lead the way in some, some aspects of those things. I'm like, well, how did I get here? You know, yeah, for sure. uh, there's plenty of things that I'm still the newbie in for sure, but that's such a cool thing to reflect on. And as a parent, I, I, I imagine as a parent, I'm not a parent, uh, that it's a cool thing to watch, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, Pass, passing on the, the tradition and the fellowship and, and watching, uh, watching my boys grow. So, so my youngest son, he's an angler, he's a fisherman through and through always has been. I mean, there's not a day goes by that that kid's not like, can we go fishing today? Um, ice fishing, cat fishing, bass fishing. I mean, you name it. And you know, he fly, he's eight years old and loves to fly fish and tie his own flies and, you know, just, um, and he, he recently, so this, uh, spring was his first turkey hunt. Um, and I'm actually working on an article about that hunt, um, where he, we, we got some, uh, 410 TSS loads and we took my great grandfather. So it'd be his great, great grandfather's, uh, Stevens model. I think it's a 42. It's like a 22, 410 over and under, you know, single shot situation. Um, and on the first official hunt of the season, shot a great rope dragger three three or four year old tom with that with that gun and it was just pretty cool to pass on that legacy and uh first time that he's gone on a hunt when he was actually the hunter right he's gone with me plenty where he was just hanging out with dad uh, but not not the hunter i you know and and again i i don't have kids myself but being a part of outdoor mentors uh, I love working with kids and think about that a lot, uh, especially now that I am mentoring so many youth and mm -hmm. turns out a lot of their parents, because a lot of the folks that I have mentored so far, the parents come along and most of the time it is the first hunt for that parent or that type of hunting scenario. It's the first for them or, you know, one of the first times and that, that is such, you know, selfishly, that is such a cool spot for me to be in and I think makes me a better mentor and teacher. It is, it is a lot of fun. And I feel really honored to be a part of like that parent and that kid's like first time together. Yeah, um, it's really cool. And Turkey hunting is one of my favorites. And I mentored, uh, four, four kiddos this year and their parents came along and three out of the four, it was their parents first Turkey hunt ever also. Yep. Um, one of the, one of the, uh, mother daughters, the mother and daughter both had never been hunting ever for anything before. And they went turkey hunting with me for the first time. And, uh, it, that was just like, I don't know. It was, it was such a cool, fun experience. I remember listening to people say when I was young, I would rather watch someone else get their bird or help yeah. them on a hunt than myself. And when I was younger, I was like, heck no, that yeah. is mine. <laughs> what are you talking about? But that has totally flipped for me. Um, even if I was going after something, I haven't had like a monster out, like a monster buck or whatever. I think I would truly get more satisfaction out of taking somebody else than myself anymore for, for yeah. pretty much the most part. Uh, and that's like a, that must be either 
maturing or <laughs> something, but uh, there's definitely a flip of a switch there as you get older, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, such a cool, such a cool thing. And I imagine seeing that with like your own kids, you know, my, my dad got into hunting right before I was born. So he was self-taught, uh, pretty, pretty much ta taught himself everything on the hunting side and then just started taking me along as soon as I could pretty much talk, uh, to whatever, you know, made sense. And it's just always been a part of my life, but he was learning as he went when he took me. And now there's like that whole nature versus nurture thing, but both of my brothers are definitely outdoorsmen, totally different types. So like your boys, I, my younger brother loves to hunt and fish. Uh, he loves to fish, uh, avid turkey hunter. And then my older brother is like through hiker, camper, survivalist dude. And I'm like some hippie redneck version of the two of them squished in the middle. So yeah, I, I like relate to that so much. And I think that's really cool that yeah, you're immersing nice. your kids like that. Mm -hmm. very cool uh can you tell us a little bit about great plains and like why you started it you know where it's going yeah for sure yeah yeah so um you know i've lived most practically all my life uh on the great plains where there that was in a uh, little bit in oklahoma and and a little bit in colorado on eastern colorado in the plains but most of my life has been uh, across the state of Kansas and various uh, parts of the state. And, you know, people oftentimes think of the, the Great Plains as flyover country, right? Um, and, you know, I get it, like no coast outdoors, right? We don't have any coastal landscape. We don't have any mountains. Um, and we do have some extreme climates, right? I mean, it's pretty hot and miserable out right now. And this, this winter is going to be cold. Um, however, with those seasons and with the prairie comes so much diversity. I mean, you'd mentioned how you were driving down from Iowa and you were in farm country and all of a sudden you're into the Flint Hills and the tall grass prairie. Um, you get out in Western Kansas and it's a totally different landscape. You know, there's rolling hills in the North part up along the Nebraska border, you get up into the Nebraska sand hills and, you know, the Dakotas and the Black Hills and, um, and even that, you know, down into Oklahoma. And so I've always had a passion and a love for the Great Plains and for sharing what the Great Plains have to offer, especially outdoors. So, you know, with, with Brittany and I starting the Great Plains Outdoors podcast, you know, I just pitched that idea to her. It's like, hey, would you want to be a part of this? And, uh, you know, she grew up in Southwest Kansas. And so her and I were on the same wavelength when, when it came to that. Um, and then that just kind of morphed into, you know, I think it could be more than just a podcast. I think we could be in a writer. Um, and I've had my, my friend Brent, um, you know, longtime writer and a mentor of mine. Um, you know, him and I would go up, he lives up uh, near Kansas City and go up and do some fishing together and stuff. And in the conversation would always turn to, we need to find some project to collaborate on. We need to work on something together. Um, and, you know, you think about what would that look like and, and, um, and knowing what an accomplished writer, award-winning writer that he is. And so I just kind of came to be this concept and I just pitched it to the both of them and said, hey, what do you think? And said, well, uh, let's see if we can develop a website and uh, we'll integrate the podcast into it and um, we'll start throwing up some, uh, some content and see what happens. So we're still in our infancy. Um, 
might be eight or 10 weeks old right now. So it's still pretty young. Um, but uh, we're, we're trying to put content up on the website every week. Um, and uh, we've got some gear reviews getting ready to happen. Um, and we're trying to feature, you know, not just what's going on in Kansas. You know, we talked originally about what we call it Kansas Outdoors. Um, and so, you know, we don't want to limit ourselves to that. And, uh, and I'm glad we didn't because immediately when we started doing the, like I mentioned, the Grandpa Fish fishing report uh, every month, all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about lakes in the Dakotas and Nebraska and Oklahoma and over into Missouri. And, uh, you know, that pretty, pretty fun. And, um, and it's interesting. So we have guests on from different parts of the Great Plains and their take on the outdoors and what they're used to, what's out of their back, their back door. So anyway, I guess that's, I'm, I'm just kind of a Great Plains junkie. I agree. And I have, I've mentioned this a couple of times on here throughout the podcast, like part of my original, I had kind of two ideas when I started the podcast about where I wanted to go with it and what, what I wanted my niche or focus to be, you know, Woods and Waters project is really about just outdoorsmen of all kinds coming together and talking about their stories and perspectives and giving other outdoorsmen a community, right? And like, realizing that the through hiker and the trophy deer hunter might not be that different and might be passionate about some of the same things and care about the same things, you know, bringing those worlds together. But the other part of me was really motivated by at the time of starting the podcast, being from Iowa, I think Iowa is a beautiful place. I love it. I love it here. I love the Midwest, uh, you know, for the people, but also there are parts of Iowa, I suppose, or part of the parts of the Midwest that might not seem like much uh, from above or driving through, but we have so much to offer here from a landscape and from a hunting and fishing perspective. And it's maybe not like the number one state or number one area for certain, you know, particular things, but a lot of the states in the Midwest are kind of highlighted for certain game and certain activities that they're known for that you know, like Iowa, it's definitely a whitetail state, for example, but the, the trapping is really rich here and the foraging is really rich here. And the, like the opportunities for different types of hunting is like in parts of Iowa, turkey hunting and upland hunting are really rich here. And that's like all very close to me. And growing up, I didn't have a lot of friends that probably enjoyed the outdoors to the level that I do and, and did, who always wanted to leave Iowa as soon as they could, wanted to leave the Midwest as soon as they mm-hmm. could. And I and I, I I love to travel and see other places, but I couldn't relate to that because I feel like we have such a special thing here yeah. uh, in the Midwest that gets overlooked. Right. Yeah. So you're speaking to my heart there when you talk about, right, so Kansas is known as a, a big buck destination. Um, Kansas is known as a place to go hunt turkeys. You know, people get excited because we have Easterns and we have Rios, right? Um, and probably they're all hybrids, but part of that is there's so much more than deer and turkey hunting. Um, you know, you mentioned upland hunting. Um, we've got all across the Midwest, you know, there's, there's so much opportunity, uh, whether it's various species of fish to target, and pursue 
um, different game birds. You know, you know, you mentioned prairie chickens when you were in the Flint Hills. You know, we've got uh, an extended prairie chicken season. Guys hunt um, greater prairie chickens over bird dogs, you know, throughout the region. You get into Dakotas and you've got sharp tails and huns and you know, we've got bobwhite quail. And um, there's so much more than just, you know, oh, I'm going on a deer hunt or I'm going to do a turkey hunt. There's so much more opportunity across the Great Plains than, you know, those uh, pinnacle species, I guess, that people think about. Yes. And there, you know, with the soil and what's available here for food for that game, it also a lot of it tastes really good too, compared to other states yeah, sometimes. Right. So that's yep. pretty awesome. Uh, yep. And when I started, and I think I still will, I think I will still do this at some point. It's like a calling for me. I don't know, as I become just, you know, my whole thing is becoming the best woodsman I can be, right? So whatever that looks like, whether that's, yep. whether that's, um, you know, leaving like no trace when I'm, when I'm mm -hmm. going places or harvesting a deer or whatever that looks like being able to identify certain birds and trees and that sort of thing. That's all of that stuff uh, matters to me and is what I'm motivated by. So it's not just like hunting specific right. for, me, for me. And I, I can feel that coming from you too. And a lot of awesome people I've met through the podcast, but I do want to kind of take people on my journey of being this kind of not really in like the best shape, but I'm definitely a flatlander, but I'd love to do some like Western tougher terrain type hunts and like take people with me on that journey of like kind of being like a Midwest hunter but doing some like Western hunts. Um, because you know, I'm, the kind of use the term flatlander like we're kind of flatlanders right. there's not we don't deal with the evolution uh, <laughs> elevation <Right. laughs> elevation yep. changes and stuff mm -hmm. yeah um i i am super intrigued though by hunting on the east or west coast uh for sure you know as much as i do love the midwest i don't plan on going anywhere permanently but i right. want to be better educated in, the, in that type of hunting as well yeah very cool. Yeah, someday. Do you mm -hmm. do you have a place that you escape to to hunt, or that you really like to go? Or, well, you know, I play the game uh, every spring. Uh, you know, the Western states. Uh, that's a whole. That's a whole podcast in itself. Um, as far as you know, like New Mexico doesn't do preference points. Wyoming does points, and there's certain uh, units that you want to apply for and you know Colorado has some over-the-counter stuff but the point creep can really get be hard to get around and you know like Arizona for example if you go to Arizona and take hunter safety in Arizona they'll give you a permanent preference point um, you know Nevada's got more public land than than any other state um, in the lower 48 anyway um, so that's a whole game and, and I'm often applying, you know, this year I applied for elk in, uh, Wyoming. I didn't draw. I've hunted there a couple times and was successful. Uh, I've hunted in Colorado a little bit, hunted in New Mexico a few years ago. Um, mostly for elk. I've taken several antelope, uh, up in Wyoming and, uh, you know, believe it or not, uh, Oklahoma just, uh, opened their first black bear season a few years ago. Um, so, you know, that's on my list of things to do. Um, I've read about uh, the state of Colorado and New Mexico went together 
they had some concern about their black bear population and they did a, some survey work biologists there did and uh, don't quote me but something like the results of that study were their bear population was like 300 percent greater than they anticipated um so you know that's something that i'd like to, to try i've never done a, a black bear hunt um but yeah i get out um and, and stomp around but primarily you know where i live here um so we actually live on a family cow calf ranch um, and have access to deer hunting uh quail hunting uh, prairie chicken hunting turkey hunting duck hunting goose hunting you know usually within a half mile of the house a lot of times uh we've, we've shot a lot of turkeys where we just literally grab our shotgun and put the vest on and walk out the back door down to the creek and hunt turkeys right here on the property where we live so um, my kids are blessed that way you know they can grab a fishing pole uh, or a 22 rifle or whatever and head out the door and about 10 steps they could be doing something like that i'm i'm curious because I relate to so many things that you were saying because I, I get a mix of, I feel like you, in, in, in a lot of industries, a lot of spaces, uh, you get someone who's maybe into one or two things and that is like hardcore what they're into. And then you get people that are like, I really love this and this, but I also love all these things out here too. Yeah, and it's, right. it's hard to, yeah. it's hard to pick. And I, I, I do have areas of hunting that I get you know, more into than others that I feel, you know, I might be like, you know, that might be kind of my thing, but I love learning all of it. Do you, and I feel like you do as well. Do you have uh, a type of like game or hunting that you like, maybe like a top two or three? Yeah, I would say probably uh, waterfowling has got to be towards the top um, because waterfowling can be it's very adaptable so um it can be really social you know you can get kids new hunters friends um sit in the blind have conversation cook in the blind um you know if it's a good day bird hunting you know duck hunting over decoys everybody's going to get to shoot um, you get to incorporate retrievers, you know, we love Labradors at my house. And so between the dog and the kids and the fellowship and the camaraderie, um, that's pretty awesome. Waterfowling can also be super challenging. Um, you know, if you go try and grind it out on a public marsh with tons of people and not many ducks, you know, it, it can be just as challenging as shooting like a 170 inch whitetail, you know, um, then you've also got the aspect of, you know, you can travel with waterfowl. And if you wanted to go hunt into Canada all the way to, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, into Mexico and, and Central America and South, you know, you can do that on those different flyways and there's different species. You know, I know guys that travel to Alaska because they want to complete a list of species, you know, and it's a big deal. Uh, you know, the swan hunts, there's a few States that have uh, limited draw swan hunts. And so guys that put in, I've never put in for that. Um, but that's a thing, you know, and so um, probably towards the top of my list is, is going to be waterfowl. Um, 
deer hunting is near and, and dear to my heart. I don't know if that was a pun or not, but um, because near and dear, yeah, it um, for me, it's about. You know, I've heard it said that there's a lot of deer hunters that could maybe tell you the history of the deer they're chasing right they've got a target buck and they've had pictures of him for the last three years and that's not really the way i hunt deer um a lot of guys like that couldn't tell you the species of tree that their stand is in um i'm more interested in the ecology of it all um and sharing that with my kids you know be able to identify there's a there's a black walnut tree we're hanging our stand in a hack uh hackberry tree and there's some Osage orange trees over here and these types of grasses and the other things that we see while we're out deer hunting um, and, and interacting with bucks, you know, rattling deer in, calling to deer. Uh, and we're blessed with, with a healthy uh, deer population here on the ranch where we hunt. Um, you know, last season I took my oldest boy out of school. Our, our season, rifle season opens on a Wednesday um, you know, we were in the stand before the sun came up. I think he shot his buck at like nine o'clock in the morning. Um, but we rattled in three or four bucks that morning. Um, and then, you know, he's able to provide pounds of meat. You know, we process that all at the house, make sausage and jerky and, you know, cut up steaks and do all that, you know, so clear from field to fork. Um, and then the very next day, his little brother went with me. I had a tag and uh, we sat in the same tree in the same stand and shot a buck the next morning, you know, same time about rattled him in at nine o'clock in the morning. And so, um, you know, we had two whitetail in the freezer and, you know, we're still putting, you know, we made breakfast sausage uh, just a couple mornings ago out of that. And so the, the deer hunting provides um, you know, you take one deer and, and, and Kansas, I think in our unit, I believe I'd have to read the regs exactly, but I think you can get five deer, you know, you only get one set of antlers. Um, but if you filled all of the doe tags and leftover tags and this tag and that tag, um, you know, you, you can really fill a freezer, uh, and provide for your family throughout the whole year. So deer have got to be right there close. Um, and then small game hunting, um, rabbits and squirrels, man, you know, with kids, I grew up. So, so that's how I, uh, was introduced. My, my mom's dad, my grandfather, um, was a, uh, NRA rimfire rifle instructor. Um, and when I was four years old, it was no big deal on a Saturday for us to take, you know, two bricks, a thousand rounds of 22 and go shoot all sorts of things. Uh, one of his favorite games, we would take a two by four and, and rip a groove down it with a, on a table saw um, and then put a deck of cards. You know, you go to the dollar store or whatever and, and buy a deck of cards for a buck and you all of a sudden you've got 52 targets. And uh, so we would play card games where you would shoot a card, you'd have to call your shot and then shoot the pip on that card uh, whether it was the diamond or the spade or the club or whatever, in order to build your hand and, and try to strategize and, and beat the other guy's poker hand or whatever it was. And so <clears throat> I grew up shooting a lot of 22 rimfire and uh, that morphed into hunting squirrels and, and cottontails. And 
a lot of woods walks and, and wisdom passed along with a 22 over my shoulder. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, that's like a good trans. Well, I have so many things I want to say about all of that to, to, so before I get into the small game thing that I'm about to say, uh, when you were talking about putting in for tags, I was, I, uh, you know, every once in a while I go through just these ideas of what I want on the podcast and like things I want to interview for and things I want to talk about. And that subject, that is definitely, that's probably five, six podcasts long, but I would love <laughs> to talk through that a little bit, you know, as someone who now I've hunted in a few different States and depending on the game you're going after, it can be pretty easy and it can be not so easy. And I haven't really done that much at all, but I I'm starting to want to, uh, for black bear specifically actually too. So, um, I want to, I want to have some of those experts or people who have gone through that experience, talk about that mm -hmm. on the podcast, because I think that would help a lot of, a lot of hunters just to hear someone talk about, um, that experience and kind of just, when you start to Google that stuff and you look that yeah. up, it gets really overwhelming really fast. Yeah, it's yeah, a rabbit uh, hole for, for sure. For me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, well, speaking of rabbit hole, <laughs> small yeah. game, uh, so something that you and I were talking about before we got, you know, on the podcast, hit record, you mentioned summer squirrel hunting to me. And I, I know sometimes I just live in my own world, but when you said that, I immediately was like, what is this guy talking about? And it clicked <laughs> in my head. Obviously not everybody has the same uh, seasons as Iowa and we uh -huh. only have a fall squirrel season and you don't. And also I shot a rabbit in Kansas and when I was there in the Flint Hills and you don't like, that's like our rabbit hunt, our rabbit, rabbit hunting is not in warm weather as either. Uh, mm -hmm. so that was interesting to me because the way that I was brought up and taught was really like, you only shoot them if it's cold outside, right. For like, right. Yeah. You know, for multiple reasons. But, um, so I was fascinated about it. And so could you, and I know a lot of other States, this is probably not news to a whole bunch of people, but can you talk to me about summer squirrel hunting and just, yeah. yeah, whatever you want to share, please share. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, in Kansas, our squirrel season opens in June, um, and then runs, uh, generally into February, um, uh, I believe I haven't looked at the regs, but, uh, anyway, um, so squirrel hunt's kind of a big deal, um, at our house and, and we do pursue them some in the summertime. Um, there's a lot of other stuff going on. So my kids are into 4-H and we ride horses and we're trying to catch fish and stuff. So, um, there's plenty of that going on. And, and to be honest, we do get after them more in, you know, like after over Christmas break, January is really, um, and, and we were talking about this squirrel rut, right? That's what we call it at our house. And, and so, uh, the breeding season for squirrels is twice a year uh typically peaks like in july and then again in january and so we get pretty excited about the squirrel rut and that's the time of year when you know a, a disclaimer right so the um the city park the university the bird feeder squirrels are are not the squirrels that we're hunting most of the time right they're a little more wily than that um and so when we're out pursuing small game, 
um, our squirrel hunts, they'll respond to a call better um, in those months. Um, the males get territorial. Um, and interestingly, you know, like you said, before we started recording, we've always called them bucks and does. Um, and then we Googled it and they're actually boars and sows, right? But I'm going to stick with bucks and does because yeah. <laughs> I, I like that better. Um, but you know, there's in, in, uh, in Kansas where we hunt, um, we've got the fox squirrels that can get as big as a house cat, you know, we get some pretty big squirrels and then we've got uh, gray squirrels and we've got some black phase fox squirrels in some different areas. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we, we like to get after them, um, this time of year, they'll be feeding on various things. Uh, the hackberries will be setting on. Um, they're still getting walnuts from last year. Um, you know, the acorns are still pretty fresh, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you find one chewing on one. Hedge balls are a big thing that, that they feed on around here um, from the Osage orange trees. Um, yeah, we like to fix squirrel and dumplings or a uh, crock pot. You know, you, if you haven't squirrel hunted a lot, there is a huge difference between a young of the year, like a small squirrel and a big squirrel, like a big uh, mature, like a, a, a buck, boar, whatever, um, as far as table fare. Um, they get big like that and they get tough. And so the young squirrels, you know, we'll chicken fry or, um, you know, however we're going to fix them like that. But those older squirrels, a lot of times will cook those down in a crock pot and um, actually um, I, I'm needing to get that recipe up on the greatplainsoutdoors.com um, but we like to make squirrel egg rolls so we'll pick that meat oh. off and mix it with cabbage and uh, uh, julienne carrots and put all that into a, usually some cilantro and some uh, green onion put all that into an egg roll wrapper and and deep fry them and you know you have uh, have people over and serve them some egg rolls and everybody's, you know, digging in and loving, you know, pretty quick, they're all gone. And then, you know, my kids are like, did you know that was a squirrel? <laughs> you know, people give you yeah. a funny look, but, uh, you know, everybody eats chickens and, uh, I've been around chickens and they're definitely not the cleanest animals and, uh, squirrels eat nuts off trees. And, uh, I personally much rather eat a squirrel than a chicken. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any worries with, the summer like meat off the squirrels like is there any big difference obviously their diet is adjusting uh, but are they still do you have any worries about no them? yeah no and so I, I think probably what you're talking about mostly is with cottontails uh so with with which are actually a rabbit right hares or the jackrabbits are different um but they can have uh i think that's called tularemia uh, mm -hmm. It's a disease that affects their liver. Uh, and the old wives' tale was, you know, you'd only hunt cottontails after a frost or a right. month that has an R in it or whatever. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and, and then, you you know, the risk of that is, is less. And, um, you know, I generally, um, and maybe more in the summer months, uh, maybe subconsciously, I don't know, if we clean warm weather cottontails um you know i usually wear like nitrile gloves um when we clean those and then i'll take a look at the liver 
And if it's spotted, we'll just pitch it out. You know, it's not worth my family getting sick um, over a meal. Um, and, you know, for a while I felt guilty about that. You know, if you mm -hmm. would uh, harvest an animal and you um, are cleaning that, field dressing it, whatever you're preparing it at your, at your kitchen for the table, and something's off and that happens like I've seen turkeys before that have like infection or yes, a deer that's been hit right yep but if I bought a package of hamburger and I get it home and it doesn't smell right I'm not going to eat it right, right? if I crack right. an egg and skillet and it's bad I'm not going to eat it so right um you know right or wrong there there is waste and you know it is what it is but i don't lose too much sleep anymore about um you know if i've harvested an animal and the meat is not fit for consumption i'm just going to pitch it out and not risk it just like if i purchased protein that was from an animal that i bought at a grocery store and it's not fit for consumption i'm still going to throw it out right no that's such a great point that is such a great point and I'm really glad that you said that because I think that's important for people to hear. I, I don't know for certain, but I know there's a handful, you know, of, you know, guests and listeners that are maybe on the newer side of hunting, which is awesome. Uh, and I love stating things like that because something I found from whether you're getting kids or adults, it doesn't matter what age they are. If they're getting into hunting for the first time, they're doing it for a number of reasons, you know, maybe for, um, a hobby to get them outside or time with their family or wild game, you know, being, you know, just being healthier, being one with nature, all those reasons that they might do it. But the thing that I always get, especially with adults that I always kind of sit back and watch and get a little freaked out about if there's somebody who, um, starts kind of joining up with other hunters or has a social media and shares about that stuff. I always want to help them be prepared for, I don't know, some, some, sometimes you get some flack for being a hunter right or like sure. people Go start ahead. picking at you or they'll ask you a bunch of questions that you're not prepared for and maybe make some judgments on you and that mm -hmm. kind of that can that's kind of hard as a hunter even if you've been doing it forever so sometimes those newbies I like almost mother hen them a little bit and worry about that because um there's a lot of guilt with that stuff and um I'm just really and glad then, that you know, stated that and that there shouldn't be you know because yeah you know, I mentioned my kids are in 4-H, and so my oldest son, you know, he's raising a steer for a county fair. Um, the purpose of that animal is to be consumed, you know, dispatched, mm -hmm. killed, butchered, and eaten. Um, my, my youngest son is raising some goats for the fair. The purpose of those animals, I mean, at, at our county fair, at the end of the, the fair, it's a terminal show. So the kids will show those animals, and they have to go to a locker they they cannot go on to another like they don't go to the state fair for example because those animals they go through our fair it's a it's a terminal show um and so people i think especially outside of the agriculture world so for my kids uh the idea of harvesting a bird or a mammal for us to take home and eat isn't that foreign to them because they're mm -hmm. raising uh, cattle and they're raising goats, you know, so they understand the concept. Um, but they're definitely, you know, if you've gotten your protein from a styrofoam carton 
in a cooler at a grocery store all your life, um, that that's a little, that's a boundary. You know, you have to try and step across that. And, and I could definitely see how people would be unsure. You know, you're driving a car with leather seats and wearing leather shoes and, and uh, using glue that's made from collagen <laughs> and eating jello and pharmaceuticals. You know, I mean, there's lots of things that people have no clue. Yes. Um, that they're, it's consumptive, right? Um, yes. But uh, especially in the Midwest. So preach on that because in a past, in a past life, I feel like I've lived four of them already in my 30 years. Um, I was in recruiting and I was a technical recruiter and I had a, a period of time there where I focused on recruiting for like food manufacturing. And in Iowa, okay. there's a lot of food manufacturers and that and consumptive like manufacturing. And so pretty much I have been in a lot of manufacturing facilities and toured them across the entire state of Iowa because I had, I pretty much had the whole state as my territory at one point. And I loved that part of my job, loved it because it was like kind of like a version of like dirty jobs a little bit. Um, I got to see everything. Like I, you know, all the uses for pigs, like there are people would not even believe how many pigs are slaughtered in just the state of Iowa in one city in Iowa on a day in a day. Um, and people who, you know, maybe just don't realize like that pig, every single part of that pig gets used and just, and I, again, can only speak from the places that I've been to, but it is used for food. It's used for makeup. It's used for heart medicine. It's, um, used for dog food. It's, it's like, and I've seen that process, like even the blood gets dried for flavoring for dog food. And there's a, a part of the hide that gets grinded down. And that's like a key ingredient in like heart medicine and the gelatin, uh, all the gelatin, all the gelatinous things. Like people don't even realize that that's just one animal we're talking about, you know, that gets used for, um, so many things. And that's, and that's really fascinating and really opened my eyes to just like, if you're not aware, you should do a little research and it'll like open your eyes like crazy. Yep. It's crazy. Um, but I, I'm curious how you feel about some of the like trap. So you you like to trap as well. We talked about that in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You and I did before we hit play, I think. Right. And do you eat everything that you trap or try to? You know, no. So a little bit. Um, And when I got it, so, you know, I grew up, like I said, the hunting small game um, and then the, you know, the deer hunting, the turkey hunting, you know, pretty well self-taught. I mean, I had some friends and buddies that I ran around with and, but like, you know, my granddad that taught me to hunt small game and to shoot um, when he was in his prime and hunting a lot there, the deer and the turkeys were extirpated from the state of Kansas. You know, there was no opportunity for that. Um, and then as he got older at arthritis and wasn't able to go, uh, that's when I was sort of coming into my prime and my dad would go with me, but, uh, definitely not his thing. Um, he would go for, you know, to have the, the time together and the fellowship, but, um, definitely wasn't, you know, what he liked he'd rather go fishing for sure. And, and we did a lot of fishing and camping and stuff as a kid. Um, but as I got into, uh, fur harvesting and trapping, um, was really later in life. 
Um, you know, it was probably 20, 19 or 20 when I really started getting into it. Um, and at the time we were kind of in this resurgence of a fur market, um, European countries, Asian countries were buying a lot of us fur. there was a, a fairly strong demand. I mean, it wasn't anything like it was in the seventies. Um, but you know, it, it, you could move fur, um, you could sell fur to local country buyers, um there was auction houses still you know the state of kansas would have like two auctions within the state you could ship fur up to ontario uh to nafa uh fur takers of america was buying fur um and you could fuel was cheap enough and the fur was valuable enough that you could you could make some money at it um and get out in you know the challenge of figuring out where you know as a like a canine trapper for example you have to literally convince that coyote where to put its foot right not just to walk down a certain trail or to come over and check out a smell but he has to put his foot on a two inch square piece of steel right you have to convince him to do that and so it's definitely a challenge um did a fair amount of trapping for a number of years until the the fur market just tanked um, and without the ability to move that, but to your question, uh, you know, I've eaten raccoon meat. I did sell a fair amount of raccoon carcass meat to some other folks, just ran some advertisements, uh, and some local newspapers and people would buy it from me. Um, beaver meat, I've given a fair amount of that away. I have eaten some of it. Um, canines. Have you um, eaten the tail? Yeah. Yeah. I've never yeah. done that. I'm just curious. Yeah. 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 I've never prepared it. I've just had, I've been to like some trapping rendezvous before yeah, um, cool. and somebody will be fixing it. Right. Um, I've had Bobcat. I probably wouldn't have, but I'd had mountain lion before I was on a uh, Western hunt out in Colorado chasing elk around and a guy brought some mountain lion from a hunt that he'd been on the year before and it was fantastic. Um, and so that kind of convinced me to try Bobcat um, and it was good. So I've not eaten, I've not tried to eat a coyote. Um, I don't know that I'm, I'll, I'll try that, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know if I will either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, and I'm sure the listeners that are avid are like, oh my God, how many times is she going to talk about this? But I'm telling you again that I never thought I would eat pod, uh, uh, bobcat. And I went to this trapping event and I just have, and I, and I didn't even mean to bring it. I just had my. I have a portable Traeger, like a pellet grill uh, uh -huh. that just connects. I have a plug-in in the back of my truck. We trapped a bobcat and basically the instructor of the whole thing who was helping everyone, like we were learning different traps and just doing a whole bunch of mm -hmm. different stuff for the weekend. It was really fun. Um, it was through Will, Wild Harness, which you probably know who they are. Yep. Um, love, the, love those ladies, but the instructor was amazing. But we cleaned the bobcat up and he's like, does anyone want to eat it? And I, I don't, it's like, it's like I had an out of body experience because I pretty much <laughs> like, all eat it. <laughs> I, I was like, and, and I, and I'm not like, I'm get, becoming a better cook all the time. I am not someone who like cooks. I just started cooking really the last like couple of years yeah. of my life. Um, because, and you know, wild game honestly has what has inspired me to cook more. And that's a whole nother podcast too. But um we were at this like boy scout camp and we just had super random spices there and and myself and a few others we just started 
seasoning the crap out of this bobcat and I put it on my pellet grill and it was awesome. Like it turned out so good. I was shocked at how much I, I think we just did a really good job preparing it too. Yeah. Um, but it was more Probably like, like pork. pork, wasn't it? Yes. Yep. Yes, exactly. Yes. That's yep. what I say. People never believe me unless they've tried it. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I was genuinely surprised. And I had um, an awesome girl who's a forester in Colorado and she's an avid mountain lion hunter, uh, has, has hounds for hunting lions. And she was recently on the podcast and she had not had bobcat, but she told me what you said, that mountain lion is actually one of her favorite meats to mm -hmm. eat. She actually really enjoys it. Um, yeah. and so I'll have to try that sometime when I get the chance, but I, I yeah. never thought I would eat a feline. I mean, ever, ever, right. ever, but I do enjoy it. So it's very apart from a catfish. What? Apart from a catfish. Oh no, no. That's like, if you cut me open, that's what I'm made of. Yeah. <laughs> it's a joke. I never eat a feline apart from a catfish. Yeah. Oh, apart from a catfish. Okay. <laughs> Okay, you're saying you like catfish. Right? It's just a bad um, joke to throw in. Yeah. There. Well, a lot of people don't like catfish because they've had it, you know, uh, prepared wrong for them and maybe taste muddy to them, probably yeah, right. is how they describe it. Okay, I get you. Because I was like, I grew up on the river and that's all we fished for when I was a kid was catfish. And every Sunday was a fish fry. Like, yeah, gotcha. that's all we had. So, yeah. yes, I feel, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I'm always curious about the trapping side. I, that's a question I get asked a lot um, when I start sharing that I like to trap because there are a lot of uh, hunters that are not trappers. Um, sure. They just feel different about trapping. And that's just a really fascinating thing. I definitely used to be that way, uh, but I have a totally different perspective. Like just from learning from other people and listening and just so, you know, soaking up information, I feel better about trapping than I used to. But um, I get asked that a lot. Like, so do you eat those animals? Well, then what's the point? And I have eaten a fair share of them and I will, um, but I have not had raccoon um, or coyote and I probably won't ever eat coyote. That's probably yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that more and more upland bird hunters and turkey hunters are coming to the realization that predator control and balance is important. Um, and I don't, I'm not a biologist. I don't claim to be an expert. Um, and I realize that we do have issues with quality habitat being available for young of the year bird rearing, whether that's waterfowl, pheasants, quail, uh, prairie chickens, turkeys, that that's a real issue. But I also do know that there are more mesopredators on the ground now than probably has ever been. Um, you know, the Dakotas did not have raccoons uh, historically, and now they're everywhere because of modern agriculture practice. You know, there's cornfields in places that these uh, mesopredators can exist. And so um, to think that a skunk possum raccoon stumbles on to a bird nest in the spring and is concerned about how many he's going to hatch and make it and decides not to eat those eggs is pretty ridiculous. And uh, 
So I, I think there's more awareness in the sporting community around those uh, bird hunters and even bird watchers um, that are starting to recognize that, you know, um, trappers are not, and hunters are not about extirpating species. We don't want to get rid of all the raccoons. We don't want to, you know, but we, we would like to see a balance. I agree. And I think when people are willing to listen and hear it out too, it's always fun for me because a lot of folks assume since we have three coon dogs and we trap and all the stuff that we just shoot a ton of raccoons and we, we actually, we don't, um, you know, a lot of it for us is, is being out there with our dogs and competing with sure. our dogs and the dog training and, um, gosh, you see such cool things at night. Like that's yeah. coon hunting is so much more than shooting a raccoon. We, we actually don't shoot that many raccoons and not because we don't see them. Uh, we actually probably should shoot more than we do because of what you're saying, you know, this Turkey, this Turkey season, I, I almost was, I've talked to the landowner just recently about what we can do in the fall to help this along because he's a farmer and these raccoons are destroying his crops on top of everything else. But this turkey season, I was out with, you know, hunt, hunting with this, this kid and he's like, is that a turkey? He's this big black ball out in the middle of the field. <laughs> yeah. And it's by a patch of tall, you know, grass. Uh, this is kind of just a random patch where there's a pole in the middle of this field. And I'm like, no, that's a, that's a big old raccoon. And we look around, we see three other raccoons just like out yeah. in different parts of this field. Out in the daylight. Yeah. Out in the daylight. And yeah. I look through the binoculars and there is a hen pheasant right next to this raccoon. And she's just hanging out there and I'm like, oh no. And I'm like watching this raccoon and he's digging out of the grass and he's eating her nest. Like he's eating eggs right there and she's just standing yeah. there. And every time I went uh, turkey hunting um, on this property, there was a minimum of four raccoons out, like just digging and going through stuff. And, um, you know, talking to that landowner, he's like, I have a real issue with them destroying my crops. You know, my yep. turkey numbers are down the last few years. You know, he's like, from what I hear, you know, I see pheasants every day out there, but I do think that they need a little extra love. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. you know, starting to game plan what that's going to look like. He doesn't hunt or trap, but we were just talking about a plan on, you know, getting rid of a few of those raccoons because they, they were, it was straight up right in my binoculars in daylight eating a pheasant. Yeah, a nocturnal animal is out there cleaning up a pheasant yes. nest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's an issue. Yeah. yeah. And there's nothing I could have done about it. You know, it wasn't legal to shoot it or do anything like that. So um, yeah. just had to kind of watch that and talk to, you know, talk with the kid about it, which was a learning opportunity. It's a good conversation, but yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I know that raccoon is really a popular thing down South to barbecue. And that's actually, uh, I've never had it. I, I would like to try that once um, done right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I've had it a couple of times and yeah. It Sort of like uh, greasy barbecue. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's kind of what I imagine. Um, yeah. from that's how I had it. Was, was barbecue. Yeah. You know, they cut most of the fat off, and then and then they parboil it. You know, so you get some boiling water, and you dunk the the meat in there, and then you either skim the fat off the top, or you like run a hose in it and run the fat off the top, 
do that a couple times to get some of that extra grease off and then cook it, you know, and I've, I had it slow cooked with like barbecue sauce and, um, you know, it was all right. Yeah. I, I, that's exactly what I imagine from cleaning raccoons, my hands, my, my hands are so oily, yeah. but they're actually <laughs> kind of gross, but they're, my skin gets really, really soft because of like <laughs> the way the oil spreads. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it's disgusting but it's also I'm sure that oil is probably used in like cosmetics and stuff too uh but it's it immediately like my my skin is like super soft and then there's like a smell that doesn't go away for a few days uh yeah. but that's kind of what I imagine um from the barbecue side and you know it's I would love to have if anyone's out there listening I'd love to have a podcast talking about this subject too because um from a trapping side yeah the fur and what they're worth has gone down uh, because of a number of reasons. But I do feel like at some point that has to semi come back around because the faux fur industry is like super bad for the environment. Yeah, <laughs> and right. I'm hoping that, you know, that all comes yeah. back around at some point. Right. I'm with you. So I've had you for a while. Time has gone by really fast. And before we let you go, you know, we're in the heat of summer right now, but I know that you're already planning for fall. Oh yeah. So what are, so are you a big, like, tell me what, tell me what's coming up for you. Tell me what you're, you know, working on right now. What does that look like? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> mid June, right. So we talked about the squirrel rut in July. We'll probably get out a little bit. Um, Right now is, you know, catfish, game on. Uh, we've got some, like, 4-H camp in the fair and a few things like that that, that we're going to do. So we're going to try and work in. We usually try and set bank lines uh, on the river here uh, once or twice a summer, camp out, do that kind of thing. So we'll get that in. Um, where I'm at, you know, we'll have in September, uh, which will be here before you know it, um, you know, dove season opens um that's usually a ton of fun um try to get out it, a lot of the early teal season um depends on uh cool fronts in nebraska and the dakotas and then water availability here <clears throat> so most of our marshlands they won't pump water um until like october and so if we're going to have any water and you know teal only need like two inches of water uh, that's what they prefer. So if we get some timely rains, um, you know, uh, Cheyenne Bottoms out by Great Bend, Kansas, is the North America's largest inland marsh. Um, and so that's, you know, it, it's a little bit of a drive for me, but it's not that far, uh, you know, considering, you know, pursuit of elk or antelope or whatever else. And so that'll kick off our waterfowl season. And, and then Kansas actually has multiple big duck seasons or, or uh, zones and regions whatever you want to call them and so you can kind of chase the opener across the state if you wanted to um you know and that'll run into october and november um our upland season will kick off in november um and you know i usually make a couple trips out to western kansas to pursue pheasants or their pheasants aren't around uh where i live they just don't for whatever reason they don't do well in the flint hills but we do have a fair amount of quail so we'll hunt quail around here um you know the big groups of geese will move in 
um, and we'll get on some goose hunts and um, hopefully you, you never know year to year we're kind of on the very south end of the ice belt and uh, so really enjoy some ice fishing every year if, if we get the opportunity uh, might make a trip actually this last like February, I was pretty close to trying to make a trip to Iowa um, and, and doing some ice fishing up there. And then I got some sketchy reports on the ice about that time and um, didn't didn't make that happen. But, you know, I may be looking at uh, Nebraska, South Dakota, Iowa. Hopefully we get some ice in Kansas. Usually our, our ice season where I'm at might be 10 days. I mean, it's not very long. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. And then, you know, like I said, the uh, small game, we get into January, we really get after uh, squirrels and cottontails and stuff like that. And so in, in the mallard, uh, duck hunting can be phenomenal here. You, it's, it's always that, you know, like I said, we're with the south edge of that ice belt. And so with the ice comes the big ducks. And um, if everything's froze up, if we get, so if, if the ice is good enough to fish and there's not a lot of mallards around, because uh, they move south, um, but as soon as the ice gets off, fingers crossed, duck season's still open, and uh, we've had some pretty phenomenal late season, late January duck hunts where you've actually got northbound, like pintails, you know, big stud plumed out bull sprigs headed northbound, so yeah. You know, it's like, the pot I'm sure it has to feel this way for you too having a podcast and writing and all, all of this do you get like this like crazy kind of adrenaline rush just talking about this stuff sometimes oh, yeah. like with other oh, people yeah. <laughs> yeah then I look out the window and I'm like it's like 105 heat index yeah. today like what the world yeah. like I'm just like the whole time you're talking I'm just like like oh, yeah, I forgot about that oh yeah I'm excited yeah uh-huh. yeah like I love ice fishing um I, 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 I love, love, love ice fishing this last year, you know, kind of really bummed me out. There was a lot of days where just the ice wasn't very good. Um, like you mentioned, and, um, I live in a different, I did live in a different area now. So just some of the spots I go to are a little bit different, but you know, if you get a chance to, I don't know where you were going to go, but if you ever come out to Iowa to do some ice fishing, would love to meet up with you on that. But there's some areas in Southeast Iowa that are really good. And then definitely Northwest Iowa that you should definitely yep. go to. Um, if, if you ever want some help with kind of pointing you in direction, I'm sure you've got that handled just fine, but I, I love ice fishing and, you know, for waterfowl, that is, there's multiple times during this interview that I have wanted to say this. I, I always, I really thought like, and I, and I am a deer hunter. I, I love deer hunting. I love bow hunting. I love archery. I love learning about, um, you know, deer and how they work and everything. Like I love everything about it, but I just really thought I was going to be this like deer hunter. And I love bird hunting. I think bird hunting in general, upland, yeah. waterfowl, turkey, uh, probably all trump deer for me. Wow. Um, I, I, and that's like, that's, it's Welcome kind of hard to the to other side. Say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I just, I love, I love field hunting for geese. Like I, I love it. Yeah. I don't care. Um, I have like a, this kind of weird, I don't understand it. Like speckle belly hunting is one of my favorite oh, yeah. things to do. Mm -hmm. um, I just love listening to them, watching them. I think they're a really cool bird. Yep. You the know, giggle chicken set up and they're doing it right. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yes. It's so awesome. And I, my little brother got his, uh, first pintail, um, in Arkansas. We took, you know, we, he came with my boyfriend and I to Arkansas. We did some uh, flooded, you know, timber hunting and then he got the most beautiful pintail and I was, you know, so like envious, but so happy for him. And I'm just like having all these flashes listening to your stories. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so jacked up right now. (laughs) You know, funny story. So uh, I think it was two deer seasons ago and my oldest boy, we were out on opening day again. It was a Wednesday morning, pulled him out of school and uh, we're in this pop-up blind hunting deer uh, on a on a creek bed area where the deer moved through on the ranch and uh, wasn't very you know the sun come up and it wasn't too long and here comes a probably a two-year-old uh, eight-point buck and you know definitely not the biggest deer on the ranch and and opening morning right and so I'm like hey if you want to shoot that deer by all means but no pressure like if you want to wait for a bigger one that's fine yeah. So we're watching this deer come down. He's coming to range and, you know, the wind's right. We've got a lot of time. He's looking at him through the scope and trying to decide what's he, what he wants to do. And finally it was like, well, so it's Wednesday, right? So he should be in school. And he says, um, if I shoot this deer, can we go duck hunting tomorrow morning? And I was like, <laughs> we can do that. I'll take you out of school. Cause I was going to take him out of school Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, to deer hunt. You know, if he didn't get one on Wednesday, we'd skip school on Thursday. And then he, that way he could have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he could have five days of hunting. And uh, so as soon as I said, yeah, we could, we could duck hunt tomorrow. I mean, it was like, blam, <laughs> deer was done. <laughs> we were, we were uh, field dressing a buck and then we were talking about moving on to duck hunting. So, um, I love love that so much. Yeah. I, I am very, you know, um, more grateful than ever that I grew up. You know, sometimes I didn't, I I don't even know, like, cause my dad, my dad was my age when he was taking me and there was so much, he's a very, uh, deer hunting is definitely something that he's very good at. Um, but so, and, and we did a lot of waterfowl hunting, a lot of deer hunting specifically, if I had to like break it down. And I had so many times where maybe I skipped, I skipped like even a sporting event, a practice, like, and he was definitely an athlete. He was definitely like, Hey, play sports kind of thing. But hunting always seemed to, we always made time for it. Like there was never there's never a year in my life where I didn't go hunting multiple times, you know, for different things you, you, from, from four years old to now. And that was something we always made time for. And I'm really, 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 really grateful for that because not only is it, obviously it's a huge part of my life and it's like what I'm passionate about and love sharing, but you know, being in the position I am now. And again, someday, like if I have children, I'm sure uh, getting youth outside, you know, one of the biggest struggles to, to do that is kids are so busy. We're all so busy, you know, and that, and that's just, that's always kind of how it's been, but it's so, it's so hard. Um, especially if the family might be getting, you know, they're new to it to not maybe go to the baseball game and, and, or maybe not go to whatever, uh, to, to go hunting, maybe skip, you know, cut Thanksgiving early to go (laughs) turkey hunting. I don't know. Um, And, and that, and it seems, that seems hard to do, but 
once that stuff's ingrained, it's like that stuff becomes a little bit more important sometimes. I know every scenario is different, but um, that's an interesting thing for me to watch. Like, as you see some of these kids or adults get into it, they're like, oh, this is getting put to the side now. I get it. Like, I, yeah. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Um, again, not that those things are not important and valid reasons not to go outdoors, but I do see people start to like realize like, Hey, we just have to make time for this. Like, this is something right. we have to make time for. Yeah. Um, so grateful. I grew up that way. Definitely. And I, I think sure. that, you know, your boys will, it sounds like they already very much are. It sounds like this is like their life and they love it. Yeah. So kudos yep. to you. That's amazing. Well, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and grateful. Well, this is a good time for, you know, we just got out of Father's Day too. So this is like a good way to just like thank all the parents out there that, you know, bring their kids along and don't make it really a forceful thing. Just like, hey, this is a part of the way we live. And I think that's really important for uh, future generations, passing it on, taking care of our wild places and also like our mental and physical health, you know, <laughs> so sure. yep. it's really important. So thank you for doing that. It's amazing. Yeah. And thank you for being on the podcast. I've kept you for forever <laughs> and I'm really thankful for your time. And do you, before, you know, we let you go, do you have any parting words, uh, any words of advice, any, any great, great things to say about our, our great plans about the Midwest? Yeah. You know, uh, I would just say, uh, if anybody wants to connect, um, they can go find me on Instagram. Uh, I'm at modern underscore wild man. Uh, that's sort of my, uh, my writing name that I go by and, and blog under, uh, please go check out the great plains outdoors.com. Um, and you know, I always sign off our podcast and, and I, I do it because I think it's important that um, there's some organization out there, whether it's, uh, you know, Pheasants Forever or National Wild Turkey or Ducks Unlimited or Delta Waterfowl or Backcountry Hunters and Anglers or something. Um, those groups do so much uh, for us at the state level at Washington, D.C., uh, advocating for public lands and, um, you know, so many projects, uh, getting access and, and helping us to uh, to have the life that we love to live so get out there find one of those organizations that you like get involved um you know that I, I think that's critical yeah amen to that absolutely thank you so much thank you again rob for your time and being on this podcast we absolutely adore you so so happy that you were here and everyone listening i adore you Thank you for being here and listening, supporting the podcast. Please leave me a review, reach out to me, ask questions. And until next time, get out there.